Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. We live in a world filled with lies. Now, that may seem like a harsh and pessimistic statement, but consider the following evidence. No one has to teach us to lie. It just happens, doesn't it? In fact, it's telling the truth that we have to teach our children, if we're honest. And as we grow up, despite being taught to always tell the truth, our lies continue. They become more sophisticated and complex, less bold-faced and more careful more calculated, and therefore easier to deny. Ask yourself, have you told any of the following lies this week? Yes, mom and dad, I finished all my homework. No, I I don't have a clue where this mess came from. I, I never responded to you because I didn't even see your text. Oh, I'm so sorry, I can't make it. Something suddenly came up. I had no idea that would happen. I didn't know what I was doing was wrong. All the little white lies we tell end up making us into a bunch of big, fat liars. Despite what we say, dishonesty is the more widely practiced best policy. And nowhere is this more evidenced than by the fact that whenever we appear in a court of law, the operating assumption is that we will lie. And therefore, we have to swear to tell the truth the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. Even outside of a courtroom, we will find ourselves believing we need to emphatically avow that we're telling the truth, saying things like, I pinky swear, I cross my heart and hope to die, or I swear to God. But as we turn to the letter written to the church by Jesus' half-brother James, we're steered in an entirely different direction. Today, if you can believe it, we're looking at a single verse, just one, I wrestled long and hard about whether to attach this verse to another sermon, but ultimately I landed on preaching a message dedicated to these three sentences, sandwiched between a section about patience, which we looked at last week, and a passage on prayer, which we'll look at next week. And I did this because this one lone verse stands on its own, offering us unique and needed wisdom, both in light of our observance today of Reformation Sunday, which actually was last week, but I decided to move it to the day after the actual day of the Reformation, but more on that later. But also, this is going to be helpful on the eve of our national election this week. Are you intrigued? I hope so. Well then, let's get right to it. Let's listen to what James has to say in just one verse in chapter 5, verse 11. Today's scripture is from James chapter 5, Verse 12, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is at least the sixth section in James's letter that has to do with what we say. And to underscore the importance of what he is sharing, James begins this single verse by saying, Above all, my brothers and sisters. Above all. James wants us to understand that what comes next is paramount, overshadowing all the directions he's given us throughout this letter. And what is it? 
What matters above all else? Here it is. James writes, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, with any other oath. To be clear, James is not talking about using foul language, a more modern association that we make out of swearing. And while it's always advisable to watch one's language, while we regularly should be mindful to keep it clean in terms of whatever comes out of our mouths, this is not the kind of swearing James has in mind. No, in telling us not to swear, James is directing us against the practice of regularly making vows or taking an oath, specifically, as you heard, in the name of the Lord. Making vows or taking oaths had become a common practice in the ancient world of James's day. A person would take an oath or make a vow in order to convince someone either that they were telling the truth or that they would keep a promise. We have a similar practice today when we raise our hands or again cross our hearts in order to communicate the same intention, that we're telling the truth or that we will keep the promise we are making. In James's world, however, the practice of swearing oaths and taking vows had become a complex system with subtle nuances. Originally, the practice of swearing was tied to one's relationship with God. It was understood that to take an oath or to make a vow in the name of the Lord was held to be binding. So, in order to get around this, but still appear to be truthful, people started making oaths or taking vows by seeming to appeal to God, but never actually mentioning the Lord by name. I swear by heaven and earth, may I never see the comfort of Israel again. I promise by the temple in Jerusalem. Oaths or vows that never invoke the name of God technically were not held to be binding. So a person could swear or make a promise that appeared to be guaranteed when, in fact, it could be invalidated or evaded due to an inaccuracy in the formula that was used. So basically, what people had done was craft a way to lie while appearing to tell the truth. And today, children invoke a similar device, don't they? When they cross their fingers while making a promise, if you cross your fingers, then the promise doesn't count. And as adults, we similarly profess to make binding contracts, yet we put in or look for loopholes to get out of our commitments. Well, if you didn't read the fine print, if you forgot to sign in that certain place, if you didn't put it in writing, well, then the agreement or promise can be invalidated, right? Now, the point James is making is not that we should never take an official oath or formally make a vow. There is nothing wrong, for example, with an oath of office or, say, a vow of marriage. There is a time and a place for such things, and they should be honored in their intention, not manipulated in order to void them for our convenience or comfort. But James's point goes beyond such situations. You see, James is asserting we shouldn't trivialize or attempt to be deceitful in our everyday, day-to-day -day commitments through frivolous promises or evasive oaths. Or, as it is more simply put by James in this verse, all you need to say is a simple yes or no. In other words, let your word be your word. When it comes to telling the truth, we shouldn't need anything else except our word. When we say yes, it should mean Yes, not maybe, not I might agree if. And when we say no, it should mean no, 
Not, we'll see, or, well, it all depends. <laughs> We've probably all heard the phrase, your word should mean something. Your word should mean something. Most, if not all of us, have been taught. Those of us who have or are raising or influencing children, teach them the importance of meaning what you say and doing what you promise. We teach that to our kids. We want that from other people. Most of us desire that from ourselves, right? And there's a reason for this. There's a reason for this because we know if a person does not mean what they say, if someone doesn't do what he or she promises, then that is a person, that is someone who cannot be trusted. When we say something, when we commit to something, people should know that our word can be counted on, that our yes means yes, and that our no means no. What do people think when you say yes? What do people believe when you say no? James says we shouldn't have to add any further declarations to what we say in order for people to know we're telling the truth. Okay, yeah, but everybody fudges or fibs every now and then, don't they? I mean, come on. I mean, there's nothing wrong with bending the truth or leaving things open to interpretation on an as-needed basis, right? Not according to James. James says very clearly, if our yes doesn't mean yes, and if our no doesn't actually mean no, then we will be condemned, he writes. Some translations read, we will fall under judgment. With this warning, James is not invalidating the reality of our forgiveness in Christ. Be not afraid. James is not suggesting that the grace of God is not deep and wide enough to cover the fragility and fallibility of our best intentions gone bad. We can and we will say things we don't mean. We can and we will not do some things we say we will. And there is forgiveness. There is grace for such moments. But there also will be consequences that we will have to face and endure not without hope or redemption, but still having to bear the pain, the grief, and the lessons of such failures. My friends, forgiveness and grace does not negate our responsibility and our accountability for how we live as followers of Jesus. This is a truth that James has been underscoring quite a bit in this letter. We must be careful. We aren't professing to be Christians when we actually aren't following Jesus. It bears repeating how James, in writing this whole letter, often draws his instruction from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in this verse, James is directly quoting Jesus from that sermon. When Jesus tells the gathered crowd, do you remember? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just as James repeats here, Jesus is calling us to reflect the image of the God in whom we are all created. God is the God of all truth, not lies. When God speaks... Creation happens. The word of the Lord never returns empty or void. And if we review the Gospels, when Jesus told someone yes, you could rely on that word. There was no question Jesus would accomplish whatever he, whatever he said he would do. Jesus never swore by God that he would heal someone or calm a storm. And if Jesus said no, he never supported it with any kind of extra assurance like the taking of a vow. He stood by what he said, 
and didn't compromise or negate it in order to satisfy public opinion or as a shortcut to get things done. Jesus simply said yes or no and kept his word. And we, those who follow the word of God made flesh, ought to be the kind of people who keep their word. Jesus wants our word to mean something because our credibility reflects on his credibility. This is the sacred trust Christ has given us. As Christians, when we speak, when we act, people ought to perceive in whatever we say and do a reflection of who Jesus is, of what Jesus is about. In a world full of lies, where humanity's default in her divorce from God is to play fast and loose with the truth, straight talk and acts of integrity in the name of Jesus are desperately needed as a counter-witness. Perhaps our most influential means of evangelism, of sharing the gospel of Christ and the kingdom of God, resides in our courage and commitment as followers of Jesus to work with all our might by the grace of God to mean what we say and to fulfill the promises we make. Likewise, all our no's as disciples of Christ must not be negotiable just for the sake of fitting in or compromised in the name of making a deal, political, economic, or otherwise. In summary, this verse is about character, reflecting the character of Christ through the honesty, the dependability, and the trustworthiness of what we say and do as followers of Jesus. As we honor and keep our word, our witness for Christ is strengthened and enhanced. But as we break and compromise our word, our witness for Christ becomes hypocritical and suspect. Applying James's wisdom in this verse leads us to our remembrance today of the Protestant Reformation. The 16th to the 17th century was a time of great division within Western Christianity. The Roman Catholic Church had become corrupted by power and deformed by false and misleading teaching. The growing waywardness of Western Christianity perhaps was most epitomized in the widespread church practice of selling what were known as indulgences. You see, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church at the time was that those who died in a state of unconfessed sin before Christ spent their afterlife in the wretched torments of purgatory. Think of purgatory as a transitional spiritual place, one of not being good enough to go to heaven, but not necessarily bad enough to end up in hell. But the Roman Catholic Church also taught that those who were fearfully concerned or uncertain about the eternal fate of a loved one could purchase an indulgence. An indulgence basically was a get-out-of-jail-free card authorized and issued by the church. So for the cost of three days' pay, you could save the soul of a family member or friend, and your donation would contribute to the 11-year-old building project of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It was in response to falsities and abuses like these that on October 31, 1517, a 33-year-old priest named Martin Luther nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, 95 theses or a long list of abuses that he wanted to talk about. And Luther was not alone in insisting upon having this conversation. Other Christian leaders like John Calvin, Ehrlich Zwingli, Thomas Cramner, William Tyndale also were protesting too. Together, these followers of Jesus were not advocating for a new church or the thousands of separate denominations that have arisen within the body of Christ in the aftermath of this important moment in world history. No, they were pushing for needed reform within the Western church. And as the inheritors of this reformation, we Protestants 
each year remember this significant chapter in the history of the church so that we will not repeat the mistakes of our ancestors in the faith, so that we will not forget that while the church is a work in progress, the ongoing development and maturity of the body of Christ is a movement of the Holy Spirit rooted in God's Word. And when we forget this, when we look to or rely upon other elements, human elements, both to dictate and to shape the church, the body of Christ becomes deformed, ultimately looking less like Jesus and more like our sinful humanity apart from Christ. One of the things that's often missed when talking about the Protestant Reformation of some 500 years ago is the objection of Luther and others was as much political as it was theological. Their concern was that the church of their day was being formed more by matters of money and power than it was the truth, the life, and the way of Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church was allowing political and economic concerns to inform and define the practices of the faith. And while Luther protested against this and was absolutely seeking to have more faithful worship of God in Christ as a God of grace, it was in living out of that grace that Luther and others were also taking a stand for the more just and equitable treatment of others, especially those who were being taken advantage of and abused. My friends, five centuries later, as we are on the throes of seismic changes in our world, both leading up to this year, but certainly laid bare in 2020 in the age of COVID, we must ask ourselves, what is shaping us as the church today? If Martin Luther were alive now, what might he nail on the door of the church? Are we being reformed by the Word and the Spirit, or are we being malformed, much like the church was 500 years ago, by matters of politics and economics? Are our yes and our no grounded in following the way of Jesus, no matter what the cost? Or have we, out of fear for our institutional survival and our desire to be culturally accepted, let our yes and our no be mandated by the aims of the nation state, dictated by the global market? Which is greater? What's more of a driving force in our lives? Our radical faithfulness to Christ, to generously serving and forgiving others like he has us? Or our rabid devotion to our political party or candidate, to mocking and demonizing those on the other side of the aisle? My friends, I'd like to see a lot less campaign signs, banners, and flags for politicians on people's lawns and houses, and a lot more visible and tangible signs and displays of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. How about you? How as Christians can we justify either our continued silence or worse, our thoughtless propagation of all the unfounded conspiracy theories, all the wanton gossip, all the strife and petty jealousies that polarize our relationships, that fracture our communities, that divide and conquer us? My friends, I'd like to see less time amongst Christians watching, reading, and listening, repeating this baseless partisan propaganda. And I'd like to see among Christians more time studying, reflecting, and sharing the wisdom and truth of Jesus. How about you? Much like the Reformation of old, we are seeing, like never before, a growing impatience and cynicism towards the church's insistent profession of faith in Jesus, while at the same time being functionally willing to deny Christ for the sake of political influence and temporal power. 
Younger generations, you know this. I know if you're listening, you know this. Younger generations no longer perceive the church as a force for good, but rather as the primary source of pain and abuse in the world. And who can blame them when our yes and our no for Christ are so easily sacrificed to advance the aims of the church when it comes to the laws we want passed, the judges we want confirmed, and the candidates that we want elected? How? How can we claim to be the body of Christ as we assert character only counts personally, but not professionally or publicly? How do we dare to argue for moral, intellectual, and spiritual integrity when we are willing to excuse cruelty, dishonesty, and dehumanization as just the nature of the beast when it comes to leadership? Where is the spirit of Moses and Elijah in the church today? Leaders of faith who boldly entered the courts of Pharaoh and King Ahab and demanded justice for the least of these. What has happened? What has happened to the ancient yet timeless biblical ethic of mutual aid and restorative hospitality? That whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. That whoever has food on their table must likewise break their bread and extend their table to those in need. How, how have we managed to take Christ's clear command to love our neighbor, the stranger, even our enemy, as ourselves, as God loves us, and made the advocacy and securities of such love selective and conditional? It should include not just the unborn, but all those living in the shadow of society. It should encompass not just fellow citizens, but all immigrants and refugees. It should mean standing with those not just who protect and serve us, but also with everyone, all persons of color, who also are entitled to be both protected and served. My friends, while the Western Church isn't the only expression of faith in Christ in the world, the power and influence that the Western and particularly the American Church has achieved has come at the expense of the faith it proclaims. Now, many will push back. The acid test of the truth of Christianity is who Jesus is, the Christ we proclaim. But that argument, while valid, only goes so far. Because the fact remains, people certainly outside the faith, but also within it, judge the merits of Christianity and the truth of Christ on the conduct of those who profess to follow, who profess to speak for Jesus. And let's make no mistake, Part of how we follow and speak for Christ includes both exercising our right to vote and specifically how and on what basis we cast our vote. To have the right to vote is one of our most precious means to speak our yes and our no as followers of Jesus. Voting is not just exercising our civic duty. It is responsively and responsibly using the wisdom God gives us as we listen, debate, pray, and choose accordingly. And as we step into the voting booth or cast our ballot by mail, we must vote being mindful that while we are exercising our right as Americans, our true citizenship is in the kingdom of God, which means the choices we face and the decisions we make must be first and foremost informed not by our political party or our voting guide, but by the King of Kings and the word he has left us to live by. Our allegiance is to Christ and not to the party line or platform. In selecting the candidates and causes we believe by the Spirit's leading will be best for our nation as a whole, let us not forget, whatever the results of this election, whatever we believe the future of this country will be, one thing is certain. In the end, the age of America will cease to be anything 
it will no longer exist. But the kingdom of God will never end. And all of the hopes and dreams and promises of heaven will come to pass, not by our vote, but thanks to divine election. And they will endure forever. Until that day, we who follow Jesus have been called to reveal and share the coming of that kingdom through every yes and every no we utter. Because fulfilling the Great Commission means more than going to the ends of the earth and just proclaiming the kingdom of God to all nations, to every area of society. The Great Commission is also about the truth and the quality of what we are proclaiming while we are present, as well as whatever we leave behind. In other words, we must mean what we say and do what we promise in reflecting the character and the integrity of the gospel and the God who has authored it in Christ. Let us then speak and act with words and deeds that model and inspire engagement with God in his promise and deliverance of not just individual salvation, but social, economic, and political justice. Let us express and embody the good news of God that seeks to rescue the poor and the oppressed, that extends salvation, that offers health and healing to all who suffer, that purposes through the victory of Christ's resurrection to give new and renewed life to all creation. Let us vigilantly rebuke the evils of racism, sexism, classism, exploitation, and destructive competition, even as we passionately defend human dignity, champion justice, and create the conditions for the flourishing of all persons. Relying on the accessible and inexhaustible riches of both the Word and the Spirit, let us refuse to be co-opted or dependent on any political party or power structure in order to advance our Creator's vision for all His children. A vision where we pull together all the wealth, resources, skills, and ideas the Lord has blessed us with for the common good. A vision where our collective work is rewarding and the fruit of our mutual labor is shared equitably. A vision where we worship and give glory to God by meaningfully and deeply relating to each other in our work, in our play, in our life together as a diverse yet intimate family. My friends, let us look forward to what will emerge as we as God's people continually pause and listen to how the Spirit is helping us to remember our identity, our purpose, and shaping us for the next generation to come. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.